Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Dexter Falcons, your latest article was called On the Warpath. Do you think the U.S. is on the warpath? Uh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> What it, what it, you know, Trotsky said, uh, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And that's always true. Dexter Filkins is a writer at The New Yorker. He reports on foreign policy, national security. He's the kind of guy who can quote Trotsky, and it just feels right. I think it's fair to say there are three places uh, where the United States is kind of taking the stick out. Yeah. How many simmering conflicts do we have right now? <laughs> well, they're just, you know, they're simmering. So so there's no, no shots are being fired. But... Uh, North Korea, Iran, and Venezuela. And yeah. kind of all those are just kind of right out front. Two of them are genuinely problematic, uh, North Korea and Venezuela. You know, Venezuela is imploding, and North Korea, nobody knows what to do. I- Iran, I'm a little puzzled by by the belligerence, but the, basically three places they've kind of taken the stick out. Yeah, where would you focus us? Because, I, I mean, I feel like the news this week is about Iran. But it seems like every week there's a new, we're turning up the heat on some new pot. Yes. I mean, I think it, you know, it depends on what happens in those places, too. It turns out a lot is happening in those places. The Department of Defense is claiming to have intelligence that shows Iran is preparing to attack American forces. And the White House has started reviewing plans to send more than 100,000 troops to the Middle East, just in case. They're looking for ways to hurt the regime. I mean, they've said they said it to me themselves. I mean, I, I spoke to somebody a uh, very senior official who works on this issue. And he said, we're, we're trying to cripple the economy. And then, so, you know, it, that begs the question, well, then what? Um, and so their answer is, which, which I think, frankly, is it's a little puzzling, is, uh, look, if we collapse the economy and the, and the Iranian people get angry and rise up against their leaders and throw them out, that's okay with us. We've been waiting for that for a long time. Yeah, we have. All this goes to the kind of this central question of, you know, what what is Iran? I think the Obama administration, they, they decided that Iran was essentially were ready to become a mature country and would, would kind of act in a rational way. And so uh, the Obama administration squeezed them very hard with economic sanctions, really hard. And the Iranians came to the table and they agreed to limit their nuclear program. And, and so that was sort of uh, we're going to treat them as a rational actor. I think it's fair to say the people in the Trump White House don't see Iran that way. They see Iran less as a country than as a revolutionary movement, thoroughly radicalized, making trouble all across the Middle East, marching slowly but inevitably towards the acquisition of nuclear weapons. It's a really dangerous country and we got to do something about it. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what we're seeing right now play out. Today on the show, Dexter is going to take us inside the Trump administration's approach to foreign policy, especially in Iran. This effort is being driven by someone Dexter calls the Republican Party's most militant foreign policy thinker. And that's why when you ask him, is the U.S. on the warpath? He says, 
Maybe. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Dexter says, if you want to understand the Trump administration's feelings about Iran, you should first know how John Bolton, Trump's national security advisor, decorates his office. He's got this framed copy of Trump's executive order backing out of the Iran nuclear deal right up on his wall in the West Wing. That nuclear deal, Trump's advisors thought it didn't restrict the Iranian nuclear program enough, didn't rein in Iran's political behavior. So Trump canceled it and began a campaign to squeeze the Iranian economy really hard. And I think the end point of that, honestly, is, you know, if the economy, if the Iranian economy were to collapse, I think what they envision is sort of the Iranians getting down on their knees and begging a little bit. That's loosen, always the fantasy. That's always the fantasy. Lo- lo- loosen, you know, loosen up the screws. And and that's the that's the objective. I It's hard to imagine... The Iranians doing that, no matter how, I, I have no doubt that the White House could inflict, can inflict an enormous amount of pain on the Iranian state and, and, and Iranian society, but just because by virtue of the American government's kind of direct and in, indirect control on the world financial system, we can, we can put them in an economic straitjacket. And that's, that's what we're doing. We're driving their oil imports, which is the basis of their economy. We're driving them straight down. And what's interesting is that you talked about this cancellation of this agreement on John Bolton's wall. (laughs) And it's interesting to me how the policy really reflects his worldview. He talks about multilateral agreements never being a good idea. You know, just never being a good idea because you'll have some things you agree on temporarily, but don't write it down because you're going to start disagreeing at some point. He talks about how humans are hardwired for war. So I guess I wonder if you think our foreign policy is really John Bolton's foreign policy and why? Well, I, th- I think in, inside the White House, my impression was that it's a one-man show, I think. It's, it's the Bolton show. The strange thing, as I learned when I when I reported my piece, was was not just that John Bolton is a hawk, uh, but but that President Trump is not. I mean, I I, th- I thought, is this going to be a story about about John Bolton restraining President Trump? And I I, th- I think it may actually be the other way around. I, hmm. I think it may be that President Trump is restraining John Bolton. You know, Bolton wants to go out into the world and and you know throw the weight of the United States around. Trump doesn't want to do that. You so know, how does that work? It, I'm not sure it does. I, I, you know, Trump is like, I don't want to pay for it. I don't want to. I don't want to get bogged down by anybody. I don't want American soldiers dying on my watch. He was apparently very. He gets very upset when that happens. I don't want any of that. I'm walking away. You know, NATO, World Trade Organization, everything, every the, the whole kind of archi- architecture of international agreements that have been built. Uh, since the Second World War. And so inside the White House, you have this 
really dramatic divergence of worldviews. And so, for instance, and I think this is directly relevant to what's happening with Iran right now, just a couple of months ago, President Trump announced that he wants to pull 2,000 American soldiers out of northeastern Syria, where, they, where they've been since 2014. They were sent, by, sent there by President Obama to basically to kill ISIS fighters. And they've, right, killed, and they've killed a lot of them. Um, yeah. and, and think of the message. Uh, you know, Syria is a, is a kind of great battleground. Everybody's there in the neighborhood. You know, Russia's there. Iran is there. Hezbollah is there. ISIS is there. The United States is there. Europe is there. You know, that that is a, a principal Iranian base in the region. And so when President Trump announced that, it would not have been crazy for the Iranians to, the Iranian state or the Iranian government to conclude, the Americans don't have the stomach for this. You know, they want to walk away. They're not, they're not in it uh, and they're not going to stay. So, um, it sends a conflicting message. Like right now we're spoiling for a fight with the Iranians. Two months ago we were walking away from the Iranians. Hmm. So like which one is it? And I and I think the answer is like nobody really knows because the White House is kind of a it's not it's not a coherent place. What's interesting is you're sort of painting a picture where we have this new intelligence report that's come out that theoretically says Iran is spoiling for a fight, preparing for a fight. And what you're saying is us withdrawing troops from Syria would kind of like give them a reason to do that. <laughs> so maybe we had something to do with that. But then at the same time, you've also reported that John Bolton has been known to twist intelligence to his liking. So it seems to me like it's really hard to know what's going on here. It's really hard. It's really hard. And he, when John Bolton acquired a reputation as someone who, in, in my own view, through my reporting, I thought it was not an unreasonable view to have that Bolton, that John Bolton acquired a reputation for basically deciding on a policy position. And if the intelligence supported that, great. If it didn't, ignore the intelligence. Keep, <laughs> keep moving and, or twisting the intelligence. And I, and I think that was, that was there were several, several examples of that uh, that came up. Much of this came up when he was nominated by President Bush uh, to become U.N. ambassador. Well, and the most ultimate example is Iraq, right? Where he yeah. still believes that it was a good idea. To he invade. does believe. I mean, Iraq's a little weird because, you know, he, he was involved in the decision to go in, but but not, he wasn't front and center. And, and I, I've been told that um, Secretary Powell at the time, Colin Powell, who did not see eye to eye with Bolton, wasn't comfortable with Bolton being around on the, on the, in the Iraq debate and so kind of kept him out of it. So, mm -hmm. so... He wasn't the main actor in that, which is kind of interesting because he wasn't deeply involved, at least at least as far as I could tell. There was one kind of pretty remarkable moment that I reported in my piece where there was a senior official at the United Nations at the, at the Chemical Weapons Convention uh, who was basically trying to persuade the Iraqis to allow inspectors in to look at their chemical weapons program. This is like literally months before as the United States is preparing to invade Iraq. And Vice President Cheney sent Bolton uh, to Europe to demand the resignation of this uh, UN official, Juan Bustani, who I interviewed. And he said, when I refused, I refused to quit. Uh, Bolton threatened my family. He said, you know, we know, your, we know your wife lives. We know where your sons are. We know where your daughter is. Pretty shocking. But he was uh, very, very credible uh, on that. So, And we should say Bolton denies that, right? Yes. Um, I, I think that Bolton, he has a reputation for being a, a really skilled, very smart, bureaucratic infighter, and at the same time, somebody who is 
willing to shade the intelligence that's in front of him uh, to get what he wants. And so that that when something like this comes up, a crisis, I mean, that's, you know, like we're having with Iran right now. That's where I think we're entitled to some skepticism. And part of the reason why Bolton was able to gather so much power was because there are these open positions right in now. the administration, yes. right? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, think about it. Uh, Mattis is gone, Jim Mattis. And, Defense and, secretary. Yeah, and that's like a whole other story. I mean, I one of the things that I discovered in this piece was like that, that Mattis was pretty clearly ignoring a lot of orders from the White House. Uh, and, if, you and, look, if you read the Mueller report, it seems like that's actually kind of what some employees do. Just yeah. ignore. Yeah, you just it's sort of pass, passive resistance. And so but to to answer your question, so at the moment we have uh we don't have a permanent secretary of defense. We don't have a, a secretary for homeland security. We don't have an ambassador to the United Nations. So some really really key uh foreign policy and national security positions are are vacant or they're held by people who don't have the endorsement of the Senate and so aren't really seen as either permanent or very strong. Pat Shanahan, who's the Secretary of Defense, acting Secretary of Defense. Well, he was just nominated, right? So yes. do you think he will change the game? Uh, maybe a little. It's, it's you know, he's kind of an enigma. Like we don't we just don't know that much about him because he hasn't, you know, he didn't spend his career in Washington. He's like a, he came from private industry. So we just, you know, the Pentagon is hard for anybody to run. <laughs> so, so, so uh, we we just don't know. But the point is to answer your question. Yeah, there's a big vacuum in Washington when it comes to national security policy right now. So it's it's basically Bolton and Pompeo, and that's kind of it. And so, power is really really concentrated in those two people. What's interesting to me is how patient Bolton has been, because. He is a firebrand. He's out there saying, you know, we should be attacking North Korea now and preventing them attacking us. But he sat there for the negotiations that President Trump had with Kim Jong-un, and he waited it out. And so, so many people have left this administration, been booted from this administration. His strategy seems to be just like hang in there, like that hang in there, kitty. Just like I'm here and I'm going to wait for my moment to get my idea in there. Well, we're going to we're going to find out. But I mean, the North Korea one, that moment in in Vietnam is remarkable when you think about it. I mean, here's John Bolton. He has publicly advocated and written advocating a preemptive war with North Korea as well as Iran. Uh, but, you know, it's very, very clear. I mean, you can just look this stuff up and he's very prolific. He's super clear. You said he wrote like 600 articles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got a long list of them. Um, and, and but it's all there. And, you know, he's unabashed about this. But we should we should attack North Korea before it has the capability to attack us. And in his memoir and in his newspaper uh, articles, in his op eds, um, he is utterly dismissive of what he calls the sort of, you know, the appeasers in every administration going back to Bill Clinton uh, who who nego- sit down and negotiate with the North Koreans? He said all they're doing is buying time. He, he's not he's not necessarily mistaken here, but he's like all they're doing. They sit down, they talk with these guys, they use flowery language. But what, what's really happening is the North Koreans are buying time to develop to develop their nuclear program to perfect it. And so we, what we need to do is attack, and we need to destroy their program before they have the capability to hit us. So, got it. Um, super clear. <laughs> But like, so there he is at the negotiating table with President Trump sitting down across from the North Korean leadership, doing exactly the same thing that he has been chortling at and dismissing for and years. ridiculing for years. Um, and, and I asked him about that. I mean, I said, 
there you were, you know, um, how did it feel? And, you know, he gave me really what, what amounted to a very unpersuasive answer. It was something like, uh, well, I think the conditions have changed. You know, the son is different, Kim Jong-un, he's different from his father and his grandfather, which, which I think really, uh, you know, uh, you got to work really hard to get to that conclusion. But, you know, but he also said kind of more broadly, look, you know, when you, when you take a job in government, you have to realize you're not going to win every argument. So uh, if you want to keep that job. And so he definitely wants to keep that job. So, but, but, so I think the irony of North Korea is that the United States is finding itself to be in exactly the same position under President Trump with John Bolton uh, in the chair the same position as every other previous administration, which is, we don't know what to do, you know? And I, one, one of a, a White House aide said to me, you know, 20 years ago, we could have taken out their program. It would have been really nasty and we, we could have bombed them, and, but it was concentrated enough and it was kind of exposed enough and we knew where everything was, we could have destroyed it. Now, now we're just talking about, you know, tens of thousands of deaths. And remember, there's, there's tens of thousands of Americans living in Seoul but that it would be so catastrophic, uh, a strike like that, because the, the North Koreans would have plenty of time to inflict terrible, terrible casualties uh, on. And I had a long conversation, not a long conversation, but a conversation with Secretary Mattis about this when he was still Secretary of Defense. Worst casualties anyone has seen in our lifetime if we went to war in, over North Korea. Um, so, so nobody knows what to do. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think, I think, you know, I asked Bolton about that, too. And I, I said, uh, a lot of people in, in this White House do not believe that, that a preemptive strike on, on North Korea is possible. So that, that's off the table. And he said it's not off the table. It's on the table. Um, he said you just have to be willing to have those deaths? Um, more or less. He said, you know, I wish we weren't in this place, uh, but the military option in North Korea is still viable. Okay, we've talked about Iran. We've talked about North Korea. But I want to talk about Venezuela, too, because— The conflict I really worry that we're about to get into is Venezuela for a couple of reasons. Like, we're more likely to get other allies to join with us in the fight. We've already sort of gathered people around to, you know, get behind Juan Guaido. But also because it could be politically advantageous in 2020 for President Trump. And so it has these two really appealing things if you're President Trump going for it. And I wonder what you learned about Venezuela when you were following John Bolton around. Well, I, it's funny you should ask that. So I, the, the picture of the stereotypical national security advisor is Brent Scowcroft, former general, super soft-spoken, really discreet. Uh, he was national security advisor to two George Herbert Walker Bush and President Ford. A kind and of leave no trace kind leave of no, person. Leave no traces, never see him, always in the shadows, just advises the president. That's my job. Um, and, and not a public face. So Bolton is turning out to be something very different uh, from that and, and really very different in, in many ways from any other person who's had that job. Um, so, so I followed him, Exhibit A. I, I followed him to Miami where he spoke to a group of Cuban exiles about Cuba, but also about Venezuela. It was kind of classic. I mean, I felt, I, I used to be a reporter in Miami and I, f- I felt like it was like 1985 again. It was, it was these aging Cuban exiles, some of whom, that well, they had fought in the Bay of Pigs. They were Bay of Pigs veterans. So they were, you know, some of them were in wheelchairs. Uh, but Bolton talked very tough about Cuba, what he called the Troika of Terror, C- Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. What struck me about that 
was not just how forcefully he spoke about those three governments and his desire to change those regimes in all three places. But what really struck me about it was it felt like a campaign speech. It felt like 2020. It felt like, you know, I'm, I'm going down to, to kind of bring the, you know, there's a million and a half Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, and Cubans living in Florida. Marco Rubio has yeah. been one of the biggest proponents of Venezuelan yes. action. And so, you know, Florida is the crucial state. And it's going to be close, as it always is. And that's a huge constituency. And, and so it, it did. It struck me as a campaign speech. Huh. I, I, I quote uh, Reed Hunt, who's a, a, a former senior official in the Clinton administration. He said that the, the temptation to intervene in Venezuela for domestic political reasons, uh, i.e. 2020, will be irresistible. Uh, now, that's just a prediction on his part, but you could sort of see it and feel it in the room in Miami when Bolton was, was uh, you know, banging the podium and saying, we're, we're uh, you know, we, we're going to do regime change in Venezuela. You could kind of feel that kind of irresistible pull towards some kind of action. Hmm. Whether they're going to do it, I don't know, but you could really, it's, it's the, the math, the math is irresistible. Dexter has covered foreign policy for decades. He says the outside world is starting to look at the United States differently now. Our diplomats are openly political, deeply isolationist. It makes Dexter wonder where all this is headed. God knows you can criticize American global leadership over the last 50 years. There's uh, no end to the mistakes and kind of bad things that we've done. But imagine a world without it. Try to do that. And so what, where does that leave you? You want to let Russia lead? You want to let China lead? Um, have at it. Uh, but I, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a much more chaotic world uh, with without American leadership. And I think this is what we're seeing. This is what we're seeing play out right now. I, I sort of feel like America and American leadership can probably survive four years of not showing up. I, I doubt it can survive eight. Hmm. I think I think the world will have fundamentally changed without in in eight years without any kind of American leadership, the type of which we're seeing now. I don't think we could recover from that. I don't think we can put the world back together in, in the way that it was. Dexter Falcons, <laughs> I don't know whether to thank you for that. <laughs> Bracing cold water of truth. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Dexter Falcons is a writer at The New Yorker. You can read up on his latest piece, John Bolton on the Warpath, in the latest issue of the magazine. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to tell a friend. In fact, you can just grab their phone and click on that podcast app, subscribe them. It's like a favor you'd be doing them. You can also write us a rating, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. All right, we'll be back tomorrow. Talk to you then. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.